Hi, I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you are watching Masterclass with Masterjohn. We are now in our 12th in a series of lessons on the antioxidant defense system. We have finished looking at all the components of the system, and we're going to spend two lessons now relating it to the incredibly relevant topic of heart disease. And we should keep in mind that heart disease is actually a collection of diseases that have different causes, and any particular disease that you're looking at could have multiple causes. What we're going to narrow in on is the leading cause of death, which is atherosclerosis of the coronary arteries that contributes to a heart attack or myocardial infarction. The first misconception that we have to deal with is the idea that arteries get clogged like pipes. And shown on the screen is a representation of atherosclerosis from a popular movie, Forks Over Knives. And I'm not trying to pick on the people who made Forks Over Knives. This could have been taken from anywhere else. It just happens to be a really good screenshot that makes the point. So if you look here, what you can see is they're demonstrating these lipids in the blood and they're trying to make the point that the more of these lipids that you have, the more they're likely to settle on the blood vessel wall and clog up the artery like a pipe. Actually, arteries are nothing like pipes. Shown here is a more realistic technical explanation of what an artery looks like. And you can see that it's composed of three biologically active layers. So the lumen is the area inside and this is where blood flows through. We're now looking at a cross section where we can see three key layers. The innermost layer that's going to be in contact with the blood is the endothelium and this is often thought of as a single layer of cells. The endothelium, together with the subendothelial space just behind it, makes up the tunica intima. You'll notice that all three layers use the word tunica, which comes from the Roman times. It's reminiscent of the outer garment or tunic that would be worn in those times. And the tunica intima is most intimately associated with the blood, and it is the innermost layer. The tunica media is medium way through the blood vessel. That's the layer in the middle. It's composed mostly of smooth muscle cells. These are going to be able to contract or relax in order to control the level of dilation or constriction of the blood vessel. The tunica adventitia is mostly composed of collagen fibers and that is the outside casing and it is providing structural support. Now, the endothelium isn't just a layer, it's going to play key regulatory roles in transporting things in and outside of the blood vessel, and they're also going to take information from the things going on in the blood and transmit it to the tunica media to say, now is the right time to dilate, now is the right time to constrict, and so on. The next reason that arteries are nothing like pipes is because the way they clog is nothing like the way a pipe clogs. A pipe clogs from the stuff on the inside in the pipe lumen, so to speak, just settling on top of 
the wall of the pipe. In a blood vessel, what you have is, this here is actually the endothelium. The plaque is accumulating behind the endothelium. That's inside the blood vessel wall. And that's more clearly demonstrate, demonstrated in the cartoon version of a plaque on the right. So here is the lumen where the blood would flow. This is the endothelium. And this is the tunica media and adventitia. The plaque is shown in the shaded area, and it is, again, in between the endothelium and the adventitia. It's in the tunica intima, and it is inside the blood vessel wall. These arrows are showing the pressure. So the plaque is putting pressure outward into the rest of the blood vessel wall, and the surrounding tissue is putting pressure back this way. That's critically important because what we know is that for the first half of their lives, arterial plaques don't grow inward to clog the blood vessel. They grow outward to make the blood vessel expand. If you look on the bottom, you can see a pipe. And as the pipe clogs, it's going to layer here, it's going to layer here, it's going to layer here, it's going to layer here. And because it's 60% progressed, we have exactly 60% of the lumen of the pipe taken up by that guck. And if we look at what happens biologically to an atherosclerotic plaque in an artery, what we instead find is that as you go from a little bit of plaque to a little more, to a little more, to a little more, if you look at this white space, that's the lumen where the blood can flow, it actually increases in the early development of atherosclerosis. And as the plaque progresses, it actually pushes outward so that you still retain most of the luminal space and the total size of the blood vessel just increases to accommodate the plaque. Only after you have about 40% plaque accumulation, or stenosis, which technically means narrowing, only after you have 40% plaque accumulation do you actually get literal narrowing of the luminal area itself. And only at, in those severe stages do you get a narrower and narrower blood vessel lumen. If you look at what the plaque looks like, you can see that it is not passively settling in the artery, it's being actively constructed by the immune system. Shown here is a plaque where you can see the artery in cross-section and this red layer is the endothelium. Inside here is the lumen where components are floating in the blood. And inside the plaque, what you see is a couple things. First of all, these large cells are phagocytes of the immune system that are gobbling up LDL particles and other lipid materials, and they are coming in here and actively quarantining the lipoproteins and their components, and they're setting up shop inside the plaque. Then, in very severe cases, they begin to die and spill out their contents and form what's called a necrotic core. These purple cells are smooth muscle cells. They migrate on top of the plaque, but still behind the endothelium. They set up shop 
and they lay down a collagen rich. They set up shop and they lay down a collagen rich fibrous cap in order to protect the contents of the necrotic core from spilling out into the blood where it would be an inflammatory liability. The fibrous cap is the critical protection against serious consequences of that plaque. If this fibrous cap remains stable, the plaque will mostly be benign. If we come back to this question of why do we eventually get narrowing once we get 40% or more plaque accumulation, so investigators looked at this and they found that it was because at a certain point you start to get subclinical plaque ruptures, they heal and you get new plaques on top of the old plaques. Shown on the left is a case where one person had one plaque, it had ruptured and scar tissue was laid down, new plaque developed on top of it over here. And as that happened, you could get more and more plaques growing on top of each other, and that, not the accumulation of the first plaque that pushes the blood vessel outward, but the layering down of a new plaque on top of an old plaque, and then a new one, and then a new one, and then a new one, is what causes progressive narrowing of the blood vessel lumen. And shown on the right is a diagram of the percent stenosis, the percent narrowing, as you go up with the number of prior healed ruptures. You have one, and then you have two, and then you have three. People who have most of that artery narrowed have an average of four prior healed ruptures, each giving the opportunity to develop a new plaque on top of the old ones. Now that is subclinical rupture. A clinical rupture is going to lead to the spilling of the inflammatory contents into the blood vessel lumen where it causes a clot to form or a thrombus. That thrombus is what blocks the blood vessel enough to cause a heart attack. Now that's somewhat of a simplification. There are numerous ways that a heart attack, a heart attack can happen. If you have triple vessel disease, meaning all three coronary arteries are severely narrow, narrowed, that itself can cause a heart attack. But most of the time, the main thing that's causing a heart attack to happen is the rupture of the fibrous cap and the formation of a thrombus. So the question becomes, what's causing the accumulation of the plaque and eventually causing the plaque to rupture? We actually gained some of our earliest insights into this process from the cholesterol-fed rabbit model at the beginning of the 20th century. One of the early findings was that if you fed rabbits cholesterol, it would cause atherosclerosis. But if you injected the rabbits with cholesterol, it wouldn't. However, if you fed rabbits cholesterol and then you isolated the lipoproteins from their blood and injected it into other rabbits, those rabbits would get atherosclerosis. So cholesterol itself did not cause heart disease, but when the cholesterol was eaten, something happened in the intestines of the rabbits that made that cholesterol 
atherogenic. What do you do with cholesterol in the intestines? You package it into lipoproteins. And when you transport it through the blood, you transport it in lipoproteins. If you look at the lipoprotein, it contains a lot more than cholesterol. Inside, you're going to have cholesterol, not shown here. You're going to have triglycerides. You're going to have fat-soluble vitamins. You're going to have other fat-soluble important substances like coenzyme Q10. You're going to have lots of fat-soluble stuff in here that needs to get from point A to point B. That's why it's being carried in the blood and lipoproteins. You're also going to have a membrane made of phospholipids. Those phospholipids have a phosphate head group. They're water-soluble and face the outside of the lipoprotein, the water-based blood. And they have fatty acid tails that face the inside of the lipoprotein because the fatty acids are fat-soluble, so they're facing the fatty interior. Many of those fatty acids are polyunsaturated and are uniquely vulnerable to lipid peroxidation because of that. You have a protein called ApoB in the LDL membrane. You have other proteins as well, but ApoB is the one that's allowing it to interact with receptors to control where the LDL goes and what kind of cells take it up. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, scientists mapped out the things that cause LDL particles to get taken up by the macrophages, the phagocytic immune cells that populate an atherosclerotic plaque. One of their first findings was that the LDL particle had to get modified, and they didn't at first know what kind of modification it was, but they knew that if they incubated the LDL particles with endothelial cells, the cells that line the blood vessel wall, for 24 hours, it would get modified in a way that would cause it to get taken up by the plaque. And they called that endothelial cell modified LDL. And what you see on the screen is LDL taken up by macrophages plotted against the concentration of the LDL particles. And although this concentration is not directly comparable to the, what you get when you have your LDL cholesterol measured, these concentrations are all below what you would find in a healthy person's blood. And what you see is that if the LDL is not modified, you have this line on the bottom where there's kind of a concentration-dependent increase, but then it plateaus. Again, it plateaus well below what you would find in human blood. On the other hand, if you have endothelial cell modified LDL, you have a much higher rate of uptake into macrophages and it doesn't plateau, at least at these concentrations, although it hints that it's starting to plateau. We can imagine maybe it plateaus over here. And so what we can say is we can go up five-fold in concentration from 10 to 50, and that has no effect on macrophage uptake of LDL particles. But simply having it endothelial modified versus not causes a five-fold increase in uptake. So clearly the modification and not the concentration, is the key driver of uptake of LDL particles into the macrophages that populate atherosclerotic plaques. One of the first papers that this group published about what that endothelial cell modification was, was called Modification of Low-Density Lipoprotein by Endothelial Cells Involves 
lipid peroxidation, and degradation of low-density lipoprotein phospholipids. Lipid peroxidation occurs exclusively to polyunsaturated fatty acids because they're uniquely vulnerable to that process, as we've been talking about since the beginning of the series. Now, we could ask the question, why would the macrophage deliberately, purposefully take up oxidized LDL particles and sequester them in an atherosclerotic plaque? Shown on the screen is the percent viability of endothelial cells incubated with different amounts of oxidized LDL. That means how many of them were surviving. They can tolerate a certain amount of oxidized LDL, but if you dump enough on those cells, then all of a sudden 40% of them die, all of a sudden almost all of them die. So, an atherosclerotic plaque isn't good for you, but if the alternative is to have unlimited oxidation of LDL that just circulates in the blood where it has direct, content, where it has direct contact with endothelial cells, the alternative is for those cells to die. So it makes sense that the immune system is going to protect the endothelial cells by sequestering the dangerous damaged lipids in an atherosclerotic plaque. Mechanistically, how does that happen? Well, the first thing to oxidize is the PUFAs in the membrane of the LDL particle. The early oxidation of the membrane is going to produce products that, when they come into contact with endothelial cells, will make the endothelial cells secrete chemoattractants that attract the phagocytic cells of the immune system. That is a call for help. Later oxidation of the protein in the LDL particle will cause the LDL receptor to not recognize the LDL particle so the liver and other cells that clear LDL cholesterol from the blood will not be able to. Instead, scavenger receptors that are expressed among other cells by macrophages will now take up the LDL particles. The macrophage has its own LDL receptor that takes up cholesterol for the needs of that macrophage. The scavenger receptor takes up oxidized LDL not for the needs of the macrophage, but to get it out of the blood. So the macrophage, if it's only expressing the LDL receptor, will just take up a little bit of LDL. The macrophage that's expressing the scavenger receptor will take up unlimited quantities of oxidized LDL. Putting this in the context of what we've learned in the modern era, it looks something like this. LDL particles called native when they're not oxidized, are always in the blood and they're always entering into the subendothelial space. This is the endothelium here. The subendothelial space is the part of the intima just behind it. They're always coming in and they could be going out and coming in and going out and coming in and going out. However, the subendothelial space is a much more oxidizing environment than the blood is. And if the LDL particle oxidizes, it is going to create signals that attract the immune system. The main circulating phagocyte is monocytes. These monocytes can come in and go out and come in and go out, just like the native LDL could come in and go out, come in and go out. But if the LDL oxidizes, it causes the signal that tells those monocytes to take up residence in the subendothelial space 
so they can start sequestering the oxidizing LDL. They morph into macrophages, which are larger cells that are doing mainly the same thing, and they're called resident macrophages when that happens. Eventually, the macrophages take up so much oxidized LDL that they become foam cells, and they're called foam cells because when you look at the tissue, it gives it a foamy, soapy appearance. The foam cells themselves are sequestering dangerous oxidized lipids. Those oxidized lipids are toxic to those foam cells, and the foam cells can eventually die, and their death is what forms the necrotic core. But their death releases oxidized lipid products that are gonna, number one, act to further prevent macrophages and monocytes from leaving to sequester more of them to try to gobble up the oxidized LDL, but also they can injure the endothelial cells and contribute to endothelial dysfunction, which means that the endothelial cell is no longer correctly responding to the environment to, to promote the dilation and contraction of blood vessels properly. And although it's not shown in this diagram, the release of these oxidized lipids from the dying cells also create an inflammatory environment that eats away at the fibrous cap. And that inflammation is one of the factors that causes the fibrous cap to degrade and become vulnerable to rupture. And it's the rupture of the fibrous cap, as we said before, that's contributing to the narrowing of arteries and eventually contributing to the formation of a thrombus that can cause a heart attack. This same process can underlie an ischemic stroke if it occurs in the carotid artery, the artery that feeds the brain. So how can we relate this back to what we know about the antioxidant system? Well, the most obvious way to do that is to say, how can we harness the antioxidant system to protect LDL particles from oxidation. The antioxidant system, all of its components, from vitamin E and C to glutathione, to the antioxidant minerals, to the B vitamins involved in energy metabolism, whether it's for the production of ATP or NADPH, are all aimed and aligned at trying to prevent lipid peroxidation from happening in the first place. So the antioxidant status in the liver, when it first produces lipoproteins, actually in, the, in this case it would be VLDL, that it's eventually going to become LDL, the antioxidants that the liver can pack that lipoprotein with are going to be the antioxidants that it has for its entire life cycle in the blood. Those antioxidants can protect LDL particles from oxidation. Once they run out, they can't protect it anymore. So the more antioxidants, the more antioxidant support the LDL particles have, the more protected they are from oxidation. But also, what are the factors that make the subendothelial space an oxidizing environment or a less oxidizing one? Again, antioxidant support there is going to be a big influence. We talked in previous lessons about how oxidative stress can contribute to inflammation and vice versa. If you have more inflammation in the subendothelial space, perhaps driven by oxidative stress initially, that's going to contribute to that vicious cycle and that's going to make the subendothelial space more oxidizing.
But there are other factors as well. For example, we talked about antioxidant support being needed for thyroid hormone. Thyroid hormone is one of the key regulators of the LDL receptor. More thyroid hormone means more LDL receptor activity, which means that LDL particles can be cleared from the blood before they have a chance to oxidize. Another key regulator of LDL receptor activity is inflammation. More inflammation means less LDL receptor activity and has the opposite effect of thyroid hormone. As we just noted, inflammation can be caused among as we just noted, one of the causes of inflammation is oxidative stress itself. So antioxidant support to prevent rogue inflammation is also going to help support LDL receptor activity in that way. Another thing that regulates this is to what extent do LDL particles get into the subendothelial space and to what extent do they stay there? Well, again, inflammation is relevant because inflammation makes the blood vessel wall more permeable and makes it easier for LDL particles to get through. If LDL particles are smaller, those LDL particles can also get through more easily, and there's some interest in the possibility of carbohydrate restriction being able to reduce LDL particle size in people who are insulin resistant although it's important to note that carbohydrate also has benefits to this system that we've been talking about. Once the LDL particles get into the subendothelial space, they're more likely to oxidize if they get stuck there. Interestingly, manganese, one of the components of the antioxidant defense system, also plays a role as a cofactor for enzymes that regulate proteoglycans, which are combinations of proteins and sugars that can make the subendothelial space a more or less sticky environment. When manganese content is lower, the proteoglycans that make up the subendothelial space become more sticky, and when manganese status is better, they become less sticky, which means that manganese, independent of its role in the antioxidant defense system, may make LDL particles less likely to get stuck in the subendothelial space and less likely to oxidize. We talked about the role of vitamin C in collagen synthesis. It actually cooperates with copper, another mineral of the antioxidant defense system, to produce that collagen. And we talked about glycine for glutathione synthesis. Well, we talked about getting glycine from collagen because glycine makes up a third of the collagen molecule. So we could also talk about glycine, vitamin C, and copper being needed for collagen synthesis. The degree to which the fibrous cap degrades is a result of the balance between synthesis of collagen and degradation of collagen. And if we don't have enough nutrients to support collagen synthesis, then the degradation of collagen caused by inflammation is likely to tip that balance in favor of degradation of the fibrous cap, making us more vulnerable to plaque rupture. There are some other things that modify these processes, such as factors that influence the calcification of the fibrous cap, which makes it brittle and more likely to rupture, even for the same degree of inflammation and thickness. And those are factors like fat-soluble vitamins A, D, and K2, and they're really beyond the scope of this lesson at this time. So the last thing that we'll note is that PUFAs play a central role here, because everything that we're talking about now is all centered around how do we prevent the PUFAs in the LDL particle 
from peroxidizing in the wrong time, in the wrong place, and contributing to an atherosclerotic plaque. And this is a fascinating topic because for decades, we've been told that the primary benefit of PUFAs is that they can lower cholesterol levels. But if they are the fatty acids in the LDL particles, not the cholesterol, that are actually initiating the cascade of events that leads to atherosclerosis, then maybe they're not that great for heart disease. So, in the next lesson, we'll talk about why the dietary question around PUFAs is so controversial, and we'll actually look at the evidence. All right, I hope you enjoyed this. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com. You have been watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, and I will see you in the next lesson.